Welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, the podcast where two brothers talk about comics. I am one of those brothers, Kevin Hines, and I am joined by my older brother, uh, Will Hines. That's me. That's right. Super old. Yeah. Super much, wise. Much older. You are 85 years older than me. Yeah. It's a phenomenon. Um, uh, our parents went into suspended animation after they had me and then uh, later, much later had Kevin. And even though we are separated by, a, by almost a century, we have become friends. That's right. Um, and yeah, this is the podcast where we discuss comics that uh, have meant a lot to us while growing up or even as adults. Yep. And we are currently in season two where we are discussing Jack Kirby and Stan Lee's entire Fantastic Four run. Which is an insane idea. Uh, it's 103 yeah. issues plus annuals. It's a massive just volume of comics, not to mention yeah. the incredible uh, importance to the superhero genre that the Fantastic Four is. Yeah, and we are covering that by doing it in the most confusing, possibly dumb way possible. Yeah. yeah. We're doing giant arcs, but then we're spending two issues talking about it. Each chunk. And uh, it's confusing. So it's last totally episode confusing. we talked about uh, issues 25 to 34 and the second annual, just recapping them. And now we're just going to somehow talk more about them. <laughs> this is our second episode on those same issues. Uh, yeah. And, we, and we've, I've basically titled these ones Getting Good, which is sort of an oversimplification, but the previous chunk was like a dip in quality, generally speaking. Yeah. And now things are really starting to get together and, we're, and the next couple chunks get better and better. You can, you'd either argue that these are good issues or that you can see the good stuff in FF kind of already there underneath the surface. We've talked about it a lot, but it's crazy like sort of how uh, disorganized and all over the place the Fantastic Four was for quite a while before it like became the Fantastic Four in its great form. Yeah, I mean at the end of this batch of issues we're talking about, I mean, we're talking four years almost, three and a half years. Yeah, I mean, it would be like, oh, yeah, that TV show's great. Start with season five. Uh, <laughs> like, it's yeah. sort of like that. I um, mean, we're talking, it's been 34, it's 36 issues, but I think it kind of covers a little more than three years. And it's still not consistently great. Like, yeah, the way, the way it's shortly going to be. There's moments of really high peaks, um, and it gets so good soon ish. But uh, it's crazy that this was like Marvel's big hit when I'm sort of like, eh, it's up and down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and we talk about that a lot. I think it's just how different it must have been from like The Flash and Green Lantern and Superman. Novelty. It's just like it's it's such a plethora of ideas uh, kind of throwing it so many different directions, so much personality that people just were had to check it out. Even if it wasn't good, it's like, oh, this album isn't good, but it's so different from what I'm used to listening to. I still like it. Yeah. It's just not a formula. Um, I think there's a reason why fans have always, um, like, liking Marvel comics isn't just taste. It's also an identity. It's like, I'm a Marvel yeah. guy. And I think it's because there's stuff – this has probably not always been true, but certainly at in the 60s it was true – that it was this idiosyncratic – very individual voices and it's like if you liked marvel you stand for unique artists individuals breaking the rules and and still telling good stories yeah i mean if i was pressed and someone said you had to pick marvel or dc i would pick marvel pretty easily though i love a lot of dc stuff of course but i would uh, it wouldn't be a hard choice if i had to pick if i'd be like i can never read any dc stuff again 
like DC superhero stuff, mm-hmm. I'd be like, okay, I'm not going to lose Marvel stuff. Yeah, there's no way. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we're in the second episode on this getting good chunk. So, yeah. and Kevin, what I love about our second episodes is we get a lot of segments. That's right. First episode is all just one segment, basically. And it's uh, people hate it. People email us and say, like, there's only one segment. What are you doing? Yeah. This is uh, insane. We have very segment oriented fans. Yeah. We didn't we, but, do, we, we didn't do our little bios. Should we do that? No, we didn't talk about ourselves at all. Um, I think we should do that. Let's we'll just do it real quick. Kevin and I sure. are just amateur comics fans. We're not technically qualified to do this other than just being lifelong fans and the types of nerds who have read some amount of stuff about it, although there's people who know a lot more than us. And then uh, we're yeah. also um, comedians uh, at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theaters. Kevin is in New York, and I'm in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, we're just incredibly, incredibly funny people. Um, yeah, power houses. While we aren't the biggest comic fans, we are probably the two most famous comedians in the world. What I've always been told is, Will, the second you got on stage, you dominated. That's what most commonly is said to me. They're like, I couldn't even see the other people on stage. You were so good. I go out of my way, worm. I know that. It, it's hard for people to remember that comedy existed before us, but it did. I don't I, know. I just want. I think I need that on the record that comedy existed before we started performing. Yes, don't even think though it, it doesn't feel like it that. doesn't feel like it. But there was comedy before Kevin and I started doing it. Yeah, I do remember a really funny, uh, a real funny conversation we had in line for something at um, that sci-fi comic shop at Union Square. Gosh, it's fam- Forbidden Forbidden Planet. Planet. Yeah, and we were in line for something there. Maybe it was the Hernandez brothers signings, and you were there with me. I don't remember what it was. Yeah, I remember that's the only time I would have been in a line to go in there. Yeah, the Hernandez brothers were doing a signing. You were standing with me. This is pretty early. You almost on. didn't go to that, if I remember. You you went back and forth on whether you should go, if I recall. That's probably true. Sounds like me. Um, but we were there waiting, and we were relatively new at UCB, a couple of years in, and we were just talking about how how lucky we were because the UCB was. Um, uh, it was very much our sensibility. Um, we were on teams and performing for an audience that, uh, you know, a niche audience that had chosen to come to UCB. Uh, so we were performing with people we liked in an area that we liked for an audience that um, was predisposed to like our type of stuff. And we were still just doing okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we were, we were in the uh, everything was goosed in our favor, and we were like medium at it. (laughs) We were playing poker, and we we were the only one who got wild cards. Like we still weren't, we weren't cleaning up. Compared to any other comedy venture, we could have gone into. You know, like if we had gone and tried to do stand up in clubs, we would have been like fighting so so far uphill, you know, or whatever, or tried to submit sitcoms at that time, but we were in this greased situation. We were just a, we were like medium, medium rated, yeah. medium level in that place. <laughs> solid, solid B students. Yeah. <laughs> in, in a way. Um, Certainly not A's. I wouldn't even say B plus, but like. At, at that time I would not, no, we, yeah. were, we were barely, barely B's, I think. Uh, yeah. And it's funny. Uh, so I don't know what we are. Um, okay. So <laughs> segments. Yeah. So we've already talked about the issues in our Watchers Watches segment last episode. So right. we're going to get into revolt and developments. And this is where we just kind of look at each character and if anything 
important has changed with that character or anything big happened to that character during this run of issues. Okay. So let's start with the thing. Yeah. I think uh, the thing's the best one to start with because he's had the most changes so far. Mm-hmm. He started off in the, the fir- our first episode being sort of a angry, smashing, almost a Hulk like, bah, I hate everyone sort of personality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in this run, I think he's really like 95% the thing we know. He's cheery and jolly and like the, he is like the dad of the Fantastic Four. He's making jokes. His jokes are sometimes it's not clear if he's making a joke or really thinks things. Like there's an episode, an, an issues. There's issues where he gets mad that like the news doesn't report about him or doesn't want to interview him. Yeah. Where like, you know, twenty issues ago he'd be like, uh, I know everyone's scared of me, but now it seems like he thinks he should be beloved and he makes jokes about such things. Yeah. Or he's serious. I'm never quite clear. He's becoming uh, he's, funnier and funnier. Like he's becoming. You know, it's funny. I was going to say Stan Lee's humor is really coming out of the thing, but he's always been described as the Jack Kirby analog, you know, cigar smoking, tough guy, put your head down and do the work. I mean, probably Spider-Man is the Ditko body with the Stan Lee mouth. I would say the same thing for a thing, right? Yeah. Things like attitude and body is Jack Kirby's tough. He's stocky. He never gives up. He was a hard worker. From the Lower East Side, just like Jack Kirby. But, like, his mouth, like, kind of, uh, don't take that seriously. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think... There's a, there's a sequence where he's talking to uh, Reed at some point, mm-hmm. and, uh, or Reed's talking, and he says, I can't speak for Ben, and he kind of says something, and Ben just goes, I've got news for you, Reed. You just spoke for me. Right. <laughs> and that's not Jack Kirby, right? That's Stanley. That's Stanley, yeah. Um... Uh, on that note, and I, I'm already breaking this segment thing. Somebody sent me or sent us uh, this clip of uh, Stanley talking like at a Princeton graduation, but some sort of ceremony. He was like a, a guest and they inter- and he did like a speech and then did like a little Q&A. Okay. Um, and he sent it to me because in it he mentions that Ditko is stepping down from working on Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Oh. Uh, and the audience was upset. Oh, yeah. It was like, no. No. <laughs> Uh, but what I noticed about it is Stanley is so funny in this. Oh, yeah. One of the first questions he gets asked is about, like, uh, the Thor pantheon uh-huh. and how, like, some comics have Zeus in it. How does Zeus and Odin get along in the Marvel Universe? And some, like, long question like that. And without, like, missing a beat, Stan goes, sometimes these Q&A segments go on too long. <laughs> I was like, that's a really funny way to say, like, I don't really want to answer this. Uh, and then he does answer it, more or less. But I, I was like, oh, that's a good joke, Stan. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, the thing has Stan's mouth. Yeah, Stan's, like, wit and irreverence. But um, I, I think in these issues is where we see, I think, like, the first real image of the things never, never fully down. He's never completely defeated. Yeah, he's never say die. You know, he's like the ideal World War II vet, like go America, go team. Yeah. But also carries around a lot of sadness and he's seen a lot of stuff. Right. He's not vengeful. He's not vengeful, but he's never going to go. He's never going to be defeated if he thinks you need him to fight. Like yeah, if he's I the last him. line of defense, he'll stand for until Forever. he's dead. Forever. Uh, I love him. I mean, he's the most lovable character in the Fantastic Four, and he's basically become that by now. 
Yeah. Uh, how about um, uh, Johnny Storm? <clears throat> so I don't I don't know if Johnny changes that much in this era. Era he's yeah. he found his personality pretty early on. Yeah, I think later on when he starts dating Crystal, we'll talk about that. Then he kind of goes through some changes. He matures but here. A he's bit. he's sort of just become who he is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He has good moments throughout this run. Um, I, I made a note that like I love the moment when during the Hulk fight where he's all bandaged up and he like goes into the fight anyway to help Ben. It's sort of like yeah. He is brave and he he jumps into battles without even thinking about the danger of it. And he's definitely yeah. uh he's a hero. Like basically your classic definition of a hero. Yeah. But I don't know if there's much change to him in these issues. What do you think? I don't think there is. And he's an interesting figure just because is there is there that much depth to the human torch? There eventually becomes depth, but I think it's almost Later in this run, and also future writers who give him depth. I think he's just a hothead teenager who likes cars and girls, but he also is a good guy. Like he doesn't shirk his duties. Yeah, I look forward to our when we deep dive on Johnny because I'm curious your thoughts on him as a full character. Yeah, you know this. The FF is like a bridge from the 50s to the 70s, and I think like the 50s is like the Flash Gordon, good guy for no reason, good guy doing the right thing, standing by flag and cut. You know, people just operated out of a sense of duty and you didn't question it. Then by the 70s, you have all these anti-heroes and, you know, the Vietnam War has disillusioned everybody. And the FF is like, starts off as a bunch of 50s characters and they're going to end up as a bunch of 70s characters by the time we're done. So, but Johnny is still in the 50s. Johnny is still like, rah, rah, let's, let's mop the floor with this clown so I can go to my sock hop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fixing up his hot rod yeah. in his spare time. Yeah. Uh, what about Reed? So uh, Reed does go through a lot of changes over the course of the run. I think they don't quite know what to do with him. Um, he's not as angry as he will become, but he's he's yeah. getting more manly and like muscular and less like frail old professor and he's becoming more like bossy. A bossy jerk. I think what we're supposed to think of him is that he is the – the leader and the boss and the smart one, but he just ends up coming off as a jerk a lot of times. Yeah. I think to make him seem like a leader, Stan often has him telling everyone what to do things that like they should know how to do themselves. Sue, put a force field around us. Um, things like that. And anytime someone does something well, it's always like Reed told me to do this as often. Yeah. The story goes way out of its way to give Reed credit for everything, but, uh, it's a lot of tell don't show. It's kind of like, well, he just seems to be kind of a jerk. (laughs) Yeah. But I guess he's less angry here than he will become. He gets worse, definitely, even during some of our favorite issues during the Galactus run. Uh, he starts getting, he's, he, you know, the stress of the job, I think, really turns him bitter and angry. Yeah. Um, uh, though during this run, Sue does declare Reed to be her, the one, she picks him out of the love triangle between Reed and Namor and tells Namor, I'm not interested in you, I'm only interested in Reed, which... Calms him down, like gets him a little less neurotic about that. I love the love triangle. I wish there was more of it. Um, should we do Sue now? We're going to do a deep dive on Sue. So should uh, we just... I want to talk a little bit about some of the just other characters real quick. Because okay. uh, I think during this run, Namor starts becoming a hero. Yes. Um, up yeah, to he... this point, he's been just really a villain. And anti-human sort of a, race, you know. Yeah. He's a villain that you sympathize with, but a villain. And in this, we have the first story where the FF is basically on Namor's side. Yeah. They uh, help him fight off Atuma. Uh, Namor doesn't know that happens, but that's like a sign of 
Namor moving into a solo book and becoming a hero, really. He's just too cool. You can't have this guy be a bad guy. He was he was a hero originally in Marvel Comics, and he's going to be a hero soon again. Yeah. Uh, Doom also has, uh, and we talked a little bit about Doom in our last deep dive, but this is the run where his origin is, and that's a big step forward in him oh, it's becoming huge. a three-dimensional it, character. It turns him from basically a laughable Flash Gordon type of one-dimensional bad guy to like one of the coolest origin stories in the Marvel universe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The origin story does a lot to make doom great. Um, and also I think just as a team, the FF are, are firmly in superhero mode. Now before this, they were sort of kind of all over the place, but during this run, they team up with, uh, the Hulk, the Avengers, X-Men, Dr. Strange. Yeah. They'd met Ant-Man and Nick Fury in the, in the batch before this and yeah. Daredevil's in the next batch. Yeah. Um, they're not quite at the uh, explore to the unknown realm that they get into for most of this run. Yeah. Or for the latter half of this run. Right. But like right now they're fighting supervillains, which I think sets them up nicely for the Frightful Four in our next batch. I mean, also because the Marvel Universe is also evolving at Fantastic yeah. Four number one. None of these other characters even existed anywhere. Yeah, Spider right. Spider Man didn't exist. Uh, I mean, I guess Captain America did, but he wasn't being he wasn't activated yet in this universe. And so, right. So he technically wasn't. I don't. It feels like he's not part of it until he shows up, right? Because who knows what? At that time, you don't know they're going to pull from their old timely books, right? So, uh, th- this is not just them becoming superheroes; it's the Marvel Universe arriving. Like, yeah, you know, so that's pretty cool. So that's sort of, I think, uh, the develop the revolting developments we saw during this run. Great segment. Um, our next segment is a deep dive. We take a deep dive on one particular character, and we call it "This Man: This In-Depth Look at a Monster." <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, and today we're going to talk about Sue Storm. Yes. Uh, soon to be Sue Richards. Yep. The Invisible Girl. Eventually, the Invisible Woman. That's right. So, as we've said many times, Sue is like, you know, the, it's a cringe-worthy lost opportunity in how badly she's developed in this whole run. Yeah. Um, uh, it is only what you project onto her as the reader that makes her interesting, for the most part. Yeah, during these 102 issues we're talking about, not Late, overall. Uh, later, she becomes great. Future writers help amend this there is also something to um you can um well i could talk a lot here what do you want to say i mean the only thing you can really say is that they put a woman on the team yeah it's like archetypes they could have made it four men and no one's going to complain in the 1960s right and there's plenty of superhero super teams that are all men there is something where it's not and it's not just a woman it is a fiance to one person and a sister to the other um yeah and a longtime friend to the other. So there's relationships and histories here. So you – the book does not exploit this well for storytelling purposes. But think about being on a team with your siblings, somebody you grew up with. Like um, even if the book doesn't use it, if you, the reader, know their siblings, you can sort of read depth. You can put depth into stories that isn't there. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I forget that they're brother and sister in these stories. Like Sue and Johnny's dad shows up, but it doesn't affect Johnny nearly as much as it affects Sue. And I every time Johnny's like, hey, dad, I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. They're brother and sister. Once in a while, you know, Johnny gets very protective of Sue, but mostly it's Reed being protective of her. 
Um, and Sue's older, right? Then Johnny, yes. Sue's the big sister. So like, yeah, th- th- this could have been used. Like, uh, she remembers Johnny as a baby. They grew up together. Their father was absent. How much did Sue put on her shoulders? Um, uh, they obviously trust each other a lot. Um, and she but, brought know, him into outer space with her and her boyfriend. Yeah. When the, it, yes. And again, that was just done for convenience to get all the, you know, n- nobody was thinking in terms of a deep story, but it is there. I mean, even just putting these kind of, uh, big general labels on them, sister, fiance, uh, big sister, you know, whatever, um, that, that's something like it does. We can see the potential of how she can be really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you rebooted the FF, which has been done before, of course, uh, or will be done in the movies and things like that, you'd think you'd want to play that up more or really hit that hard. And, you know, she's her fiance is a scientist who's like the smartest person in the world. Uh, He adores her. Um, A lot a lot of the reboots and stuff have made Sue a scientist also. It sort of makes sense. They would have like like minded interests yeah in ultimate ff she's also like a young genius just like reed they're both like in sort of the same um uh, you know teen uh, science program or something uh she's nowhere in reed's level but she has a specialty in biochemistry that he doesn't have so she can sort of supplement complement his work so you know i have this beatles podcast i've heard of it yep and um, we talk about the Beatles on that show a lot. And, you know, there's four members of the Beatles, Kevin. And, yeah, I uh, remember that. Uh, what one of my panelists, Mr. Curtis Quinn, said, and I'm, I'm sure this is said by, by, said by lots of people in different ways, but he was like, oh, yeah, the, the Beatles are like Jungian archetypes. Like it is very easy to take almost any group of people and sort them into the Beatles. Like who's the John, who's the Paul, who's the George, who's the Ringo? Like, it's just natural to do that. Like, and you need all four of them, even though Ringo is technically the least involved of what made the Beatles special. You got to have Ringo. You need your Ringo. Otherwise, it's not complete. Um, and so Beatles fans put a lot of importance on Ringo. Yeah, even if probably they could have had a different drummer and still been all right. It doesn't feel like it would be the Beatles without him. And so there's something about the Fantastic Four are also just like when a character is underdeveloped, Sue, most of all, although Johnny also is not that developed in a lot of this run and Reed goes all over the place. You fill it in. You fill it in. We know you tell us they're they are essentially a family. We put family stuff onto them, even if the story doesn't. We imagine Johnny and Sue being protected or I do being protective of each other. We imagine Ben feeling guilty about uh, dragging the others with him when he gets into trouble or something. I don't know. You, we fill in the blanks for a lot. And Sue, we have to fill in the most. Yeah. I, I mean, as a kid, I don't remember it bother. I mean, uh, I was a kid and also it was a different era, but her stuff didn't bother me as much. But each time I reread these things, it bothers me more how uh, kind of left off, left out she is. Her um, powers are really great. Like they, once she gets force fields, her powers are really cool. Yes, when, when they add force fields, which happens in like what twenty five or something, um, thirty. Oh, geez, that far. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you one second. Thirty, uh, not thirty four. Um, oh no, you're right. It's before twenty five. It is the mole man issue, which was. 
Oh man, where was that? Not there. That was mid twenties. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, here we go. Twenty two. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah, that makes her like a really formidable, just power. Even when she was invisible, they didn't use that enough. Like, even turning invisible is pretty pretty powerful. <laughs> it's a useful skill that almost served no purpose yeah. in the issues. It just looks cool. The FF always look great, <laughs> even when the stories are not where they should be. But I think you'd have trouble writing an FF action story with Sue there and not using her force fields. Where, like, invisibility, you could be like, oh, I wasn't thinking about it, so I didn't, like find a cool thing to do with invisibility, but it's like force fields. You'd constantly be like, Oh, that'd be useful right here. Yeah. Uh, Um, And that's what sort of happens more and more is just like, she, she's protecting people. She is, uh, you know, she traps air when they land on the blue area of the moon. So they survive. She uh, pins people down. She starts using her force fields as offensive weapons. She like turns them into like balls that she can shoot at people uh, she hasn't hasn't quite like started riding around on force fields yet, which she does now a fair amount. But like all those things start happening more and more and more, making your power so much more fluid, yeah, and flexible and and and, and unique. Uh, and although you know character is separate from your powers, but it this is a superhero action book. We need you to have some useful powers to get you in the story a lot. She really goes through a dark period in the second half of this run. And that continues, I think, for a while. I haven't read a lot of the issues after, but when she gets pregnant in this book, Reed basically kicks her off the team. Yeah. She is kept in bed. She is replaced by Crystal for a while. Crystal uh, of the she, Inhumans. Of the Inhumans. We have not met her in our recaps yet, but she sort of, she's sort of replaced. I know there's a run after Stan leaves the book where I think Reed and Sue almost get divorced. It's just like they're constantly like just pushing yeah. her out. Yeah. Um, and that... Uh, it probably changes before this, but it definitely changed a lot during John Byrne's run, right, Will? Oh, yeah. John Byrne, in, at least in my mind, I, I haven't read all of the FF in between Jack Kirby and John Byrne. I've read a fair amount of it. But John Byrne, to me, gets credit, rightly so, for uh, making uh, Sue Storm the character she deserved to be. Like, he paid a lot of attention to it, gave a lot of stories, um, changed her name from the Invisible Girl to the Invisible Woman, Really, which I mean, it can't be understated because this was done in the 80s. It was in the 80s, yeah. And I feel like now, if she was still Invisible Girl, it'd be embarrassing. But she's been Invisible Woman for 30, 40 years. I, I think there is a way where if you really wanted to lean into her being like a girly girl, like a, you know, shopping for dresses, obsessed yeah, with I, her hair, you that could be a fun character. But they didn't even really do that. Yeah, but I think as an adult woman with two children, calling her an Invisible Girl. Oh, yeah. That is an insult. It'd be insane. Uh, calling her invisible woman. It's just like, oh, yeah, that's what she should have always been. I mean, you know, th- this is th- they were born. This comic was born in 1961. There's still like B movies. Attack of the 50 foot woman. Yeah. Like just like, you know, uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Like if you're your gender, if you're not a, if you're a woman and uh, not a man, then your gender is mentioned in the title. Rightly or wrongly. Like yeah. Pro- probably you would give her a name that didn't mention gender at all, right? Like, But even there, you said the 50-foot woman. <laughs> I think it's just like... Yeah. It, it, well, it should have been the 50-foot chick. That's what I've always thought. Yeah, yeah, sure. You've always argued for that. Yeah. Invisible chick would have been a, an yeah. interesting character. Yeah. Um, the invisible set of gams. Uh, Burn. so Burn did do a lot. I think Burn did was great about giving each character moments to shine. 
Yeah. Um, another thing that happened, and, I don't, and I've talked briefly about this in a previous podcast, but I'll talk about it again because I don't think you've read this story, is in the Marvel Adventures Fantastic Four series, which okay. is like an all-ages kids book. They had one for Spider-Man. They had one for Avengers. They had one for the FF. Uh, Zeb Wells is this writer who I think has done a lot of TV writing, but has done some comic book writing. And he's a real character first writer. I really dig his stuff. But he wrote four issues where each one was about one of the FF characters. It was about the team overall, but each one like focused. Like there was a Thing story. There was a Johnny story. There was a Reed story. And his Sue story had her freelancing for S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, It was basically like Nick Fury said, hey, uh, I need your help on a case. She's like, oh, you mean the FF? He's like, no, just you. You're the power as a spy. You would make a great spy. You turn invisible. You have force fields. You're what I need. And she starts doing all those adventures and feeling very useful and wanted and needed in a way that the FF hadn't been doing for her in this storyline. Right. Uh, And it's a really fun story. And eventually, you know, the FF uh, make a, you know, they talk about how important she is on the news or something and she goes back to them. But in the story, it's like really cool to see like Sue as a solo hero kicking butt. And that inspired Mark Wade, who wrote the Fantastic Four, I believe, when he did a short-lived S.H.I.E.L.D. series, he included the Invisible Woman and sort of retroactively declared that she'd been always secretly doing these S.H.I.E.L.D. missions. Oh, that's fun. Secretly behind the FF's back. Uh, and now there's an Invisible Woman miniseries that is coming out right now, Well, uh, which involves that, involves her doing some S.H.I.E.L.D. work. Cool. Uh, to get her doing some solo stuff. And it it and she does, her power set is very spy oriented and it's very cool to see her as a confident leader i mean she's been a superhero longer than anyone else in the mar any other woman in the marvel universe right that's right she should be the most confident woman every other female superhero from captain marvel to uh, uh spider woman to uh whoever should look to her the invincible squirrel girl i mean unbeatable squirrel girl my bad uh, yeah so anyway uh i think that stuff uh, while smaller than like what Byrne and Kirby did in just creating this character and, and moving her forward was also very essential. Um, uh, well, I'm always kind of rooting for her to be, you know, like her character is the least defined for this run. Like I think, you know, we've always said, lots of people have said what makes the Marvel superheroes great is not the powers. It's what they are without the mask. Like Tony Stark is interesting without his armor. Uh, he's yeah. an interesting character. Uh, Peter Parker is an interesting character without the mask and his life is interesting. Um, Sue Storm in this run is is defined by being fiance to the other underdeveloped character, Reed. <laughs> yeah. So she doesn't have so, a liar. Yeah. She's definitely lacking. And I think the way she's written now, she's often written as, uh, if not the tactical leader of the team, sort of the the – sort of the at-home leader of the team. Like, I, I mean, it, I guess that almost sounds like mother of the team, but it's yeah. more than that because she sort of, like, carries it with, like, a confidence and a power uh, that, you know, you would you would put for, like, Captain America. She's sort of just, like, she's the one who, you know, you don't don't mess with my team. These are, this is, these are my people. Uh, I'm going to check in on everybody, make sure everyone's doing good. We're going to keep moving forward. I mean, I don't, I, she's the big sister. I don't, I don't mind a big sister role for her, you know, yeah. the big sibling, like the, uh, the one, you know, I picture her growing up absentee parents taking care of business as a kid. And I would, I could see that being the basis of a 
of a personality. I mean, and now they're they have their two children in the book as well. So like she well, literally is a mother child. of Valeria. Okay. Um. So now they have two kids, and like you know, because of that, she is literally a mother of some of the team. Uh, but it, it it would be very easy for them to fall into just her worrying about her kids and worrying about her brother and worrying about her husband and not worrying about Ben the whole time. But that's not how she's written. She's written as just sort of like, we're a team, we're powerful, we're, we can handle it. And that's how yeah. I think she should be written. I wonder if there was something revolutionary or novelty just to have an engagement on the team, like to be able to mix a little romance and sci-fi stories in one comic. I don't know. Was that I, something? I got to imagine it was because, I mean, Superman and Lois Lane have been playing tag for ever. Like the biggest superhero romance in comics was those two. And they never moved forward um, until whatever, when they got married in the 80s. I don't so, remember when that happened. There, there, 90s? Is, there is something progressive about how, well, the main romance of FF is between two of the characters. It's not a character and a side a side character. Yeah. And it moves forward. The status quo changes. They, they, get, they married, get married. They, they have, have a kid. Kids. Yeah. That is pretty rad. Like that aspect of it is really cool. I mean, that, yeah. and that's, I mean, Marvel's great. <laughs> like Marvel <laughs> comics is great and they're not perfect and they have huge shortcomings, but even in this area where they drop the ball a lot, there's, they're laying the groundwork for future writers to fix everything. They did enough things right that a future writer could sort of retroactively cover a lot of the lost, uh, the holes. I don't know. Yeah. Su- Sue Storm. Good name, too. I like Sue Storm. Uh, yeah, Sue Storm is great. And almost as sad that she's now Sue Richards. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, just Sue Storm. Oof, baby. It's like sexy scientist girl. I mean, Johnny uh, Storm is also cool. It's a great, it's a great name. It's an, inth- yeah. Um, the second yeah. craziest name after Von Doom. <laughs> I mean, nothing comes close to Von Doom. That's not even fair putting them in the same category. <laughs> um, uh, anything else you want to say about Sue? I think we, I, I've I've got it. Yeah. So she's terrible. Anyway, <laughs> uh, no, she's great. I think she is. We such love a her. Funny we character. love her, and we just want her to be treated better, which she eventually will be. Yeah, uh, I think we should take a break. Will. Uh, okay. Um, let's do it. We'll be right back. Uh, this is Will and Kevin from Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. And hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, maybe try listening to our first season. Yeah, maybe. We started this podcast by doing a whole season, 50 episodes, all about Spider-Man comics. We even did it under a different name. Screw it. We're just going to talk about Spider-Man. Uh, and we did one episode for each issue of the original comic book run. That was done by Spidey's creators, Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. Plus, we spent time talking about the Spider-Man movies, the recent video game, one on Steve Ditko, one on Stan Lee, and lots of other fun stuff. And all those episodes are still up. They should be part of the same feed you use to get this podcast. So, if you're a fan of Spider-Man, check those out. Screw it. We're just going to talk about comics. But in this case, we're just talking about the first season where we talk about Spider-Man. All from Campfire Media. And uh, we are back. All right, Kevin, what's our next segment? So the next segment we do is Fantastic Chat. This is where you or I post questions to each other to answer. All right, so I have a vague one. I forget. I maybe even have asked you this in the course of the many hours we've already spent talking about the Fantastic Four. 
But what is it about the Fantastic Four that grabs you emotionally? Like, I know what grabs you emotionally from Spider-Man. Uh, it's, it's far easier. It's a much more emotional book. But what about this weird sci-fi hodgepodge, constantly evolving characters? What is it that makes you have an emotional connection to it? I mean, as a cheat, I'm going to give two answers. I think in the first eight issues, it's just how weird it is. Uh huh. Like those first, the digest we owned that covered the first six issues, I guess, is really what I'm thinking. Um, you know, the thing looked weird. Johnny was sort of weird. Reed was odd. Like they were yeah. all such strange characters. Grotesque, really. Um, that it was like, oh, what is this all about? So um, the, the art, the visual depiction. Yeah. And as they got more normal, I lose some interest in it for a little bit. But then when you get to the Galactus stuff, I get very interested in it again. And I think unlike most comics where uh, I'm really drawn to the characters, personalities and um, like their their how they how they evolve and change and react to things here. It's it's more just the the plots are sort of amazing and like they're on the edge of the universe, basically. Yeah. The things they're dealing with are bigger than anything of any other comic at that time. I, mean, I guess maybe Dr. Strange, but I didn't read that. So it's hard to say, you know, the Galactus is a bigger threat than anything I can even conceive of. The watcher is so crazy. They're going to other planets. They're going to the negative zone, uh, which isn't the same as like going to Asgard and fighting other people like you. It's they're like in another universe where technically their matter shouldn't exist. And that doesn't seem to slow them down at all. It's just like, yep, that's what we do. This thing exists. Let's go there and check it out. And there's something very bold and powerful about them. I mean, Galactus should terrify you. And the first thing you do when Galactus shows up should be you call every single superhero and say, get over here. Yeah. This is going to take all of us. Instead, they're sort of like, we can do this. Yeah. We're the best suited to do this. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I see that answer. Um, what about you? How do you, what would you say? I, was, I think initially it was, um, yeah, that digest really looked great. The visual depiction of the FF grabbed me. I think also I was enough of a comics nerd as a young man that just because I knew they were first, I was sort of interested in them. Like I knew that they were the beginning of the Marvel universe. So even if I was more interested in a Daredevil story or a Spider-Man story, the FF, I always had respect for them, even though it's a fictional history, but I, I'm like, I, I somehow very young was like these. No, these guys are where it all comes from. They're an um, interesting character in that it, sense. It's kind of it's kind of like if you like Bob Dylan, you get interested in Woody Guthrie folk songs. And even even if Woody Guthrie folk songs don't grab you, you're like, well, this this taught Bob Dylan how to do his thing, so I'm interested in it. Or I'll listen to fifty songs, kind of listening for trying to hear what the Beatles heard in those songs. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. Like uh, um, th- this character is sort of uh, a part of it, at least is is brought into like the Incredibles, as well as I think even like Tom Strong when Alan Moore did that book. There's a bit of uh, FF in there. Yeah, in Astro City, Kurt Busiek's uh, first family is definitely like a Fantastic Four, and they are sort of like there's this idea that even if they're not first, they are foremost like i don't know like the most well-known superheroes yeah Yeah. in their universe at least um like if you lived in new york you know who the fantastic four are you might not know who hawkeye is right exactly 
But you definitely know who the Fantastic Four are. You know who Johnny Storm is. You know their whole life story. Yeah. There's Um, probably uh, TV specials on them all the time. uh, And also the second reason I got hooked was when I was in my 20s and you and I read the essential Fantastic Fours. That's really a stronger bond. When I realized how good the middle issues were, which I did not know as a teenager... I yeah. became newly just like, oh, this is incredible. Oh, also, I love the John Byrne stories. I, yeah, I, I mean, love the Digest first, then the John Byrne stories, and then I discovered the Galactus saga and surrounding issues. Yeah, I definitely read that stuff in the same order because um, I just followed behind you on that. And that's for sure. I mean, Byrne stuff was so good that it made me appreciate that Digest even more where it's like, yeah. oh, wow, he really made these characters cool. And then when you read the essential stuff, you're like, oh, no, they were – he re- – he, he reinvigorated us why they're yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Byrne did such great stuff with them. Even like removing the thing uh, for a while in that story, it's he still kept it cool, right? He, guts, replaced- he, took, he took out the best character and kept it yeah. going. Yeah, it was weird. Um, okay, that's my chat topic. Okay, here's my dumb one. Okay. Make Gideon... The super rich uh, villain of the final story that we recapped. How would you make him a legitimate uh, villain? <laughs> like not a, a funny villain. Yeah. Um, okay. That's a fun. I topic. do not have. I do not have an answer for this. I think it's like you have to make his motivation a little less sinister. Like he's bored and asks other CEOs to dare him. I, I think the idea of a capitalist greed based villain is good and i just would have him i would i would really take out his son and have it just be that money equals power and money lets me do it i would have them not defeat him i would have him sort of be like toy with them they fight it off to like a stalemate and he gets bored and goes away and they know they're gonna have to deal with him again like i I would make him more of a cool and collected sort of lex luther type um, modern Lex Luthor, corporate yeah. Lex Luthor. There you um, go, MCU. Gideon is ready for your first Fantastic Four film. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I w- wouldn't use him as the main way. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the that's the better answer. Yeah, but I was not giving you that choice. <laughs> um, should we go on to our awards? Yeah, let's do our awards. So Kevin and I decided that we're, we maybe are not even going to have regular awards. We're going to give out whatever awards we think. So yeah. uh, I want to give out funniest moment award in this batch. Sure. To the um, I accept your apology line from Thing and when he's talking to Torch. Right. And we talked about that last episode and that's there's no question that was both of our favorite moment. <laughs> um, do we know the exact lines of that again? Let me see. Do I? Uh, I'll find it. Um, um, in our Okay. It's issue 31, Mole Man. Um, in the beginning when Ben is like in a bathtub or something like that, or I forget. Yeah. 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 Um, how, what's your, uh, what are your favorite moments of this? What's your favorite single moment? Not funniest moment. Your favorite. Yeah. Moment. Um, this is going to be a weird one because it should be in the Hulk thing fight, but I really love the end of the Diablo story where Ben realizes he screwed up and chases down Diablo like through the castle until he retraps him. Uh, the thing is so terrifying in that moment that he hasn't really been scary in so long that you forget how powerful I love it. He can be. I love it. And That's it's a just really sequence. cool moment. 
It's kind of like in uh, Rogue One when uh, Darth Vader, at, yeah. the, at the end of Rogue One where Darth Vader is just tearing through a hallway, murdering people left and right, and he becomes this fearsome, you're reminded of this fearsome power he has. Yeah, in a weird way, uh, Darth Vader never does that in any of the original movies. Yeah. There's just a fear that he could do that, and they sort of show it in Rogue One, and it shows why he's this villain. Yeah, it's sort of like that. Every now and then you need to be reminded, like, oh, man, this character. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Yancey Street really emerges in this series as a force to be reckoned with in terms <laughs> yeah, of yeah. pranking Ben, and I love that. Yeah, they go to Yancey Street. Um, um, also, in the, also in the Diablo issue, I think that's one of the silliest starts is where they start Lost in the Woods. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I mean, I like it. It's silly, but I like it. Uh, we start to see a glimpse of what will become one of Kirby's main strengths, which is just like introducing whole worlds in a short period of time. Like when we go to visit Atlantis, uh, he's already introduced it, but we just once again see this whole civilization that he's created down there. And then Doom's origin is like a whole world that unfolds. So I give an award to Jack Kirby for creating worlds. Um, I think... Uh is is the scroll in this run? Is Super Scroll in this run? No, that was the previous one. Um, so I will not talk about Super Scroll. He was not in here. I think my favorite guest star of all the guest stars uh, is the X Men. Yeah. Okay. I think that's fun. They're such a different group to them, but it's really fun uh, watching those two teams kind of go up against each other. It's not the best issue because it's got the Mad Thinker and Puppet Master. It's got a lot going on. But I really like watching those uh, powerful uh, mutants really take on the FF. I think that's fun. And, and even the Professor X doesn't even really get into it. But uh, It's, it's funny. Sort of, the the really X-Men at that time are just nowhere near as good as they will become under uh, Claremont. Yeah. And um, here they're sort of like teens who like – they're kind of like little Spider-Men. They're like just a little bit over their head kids with powers. Yeah, but they're so powerful. So powerful. But then, you know, the persecuted, um, you know, on the run racism allegory stuff happens later. But that sort of happens with the Inhumans in the Fantastic Four. Like the the Inhumans in the Fantastic Four are more like the X-Men of the future in Marvel Comics. Yeah, I agree with that. Or a little bit. They I, overlap I a little bit. They have like a wait drama to get into and the... pathos. I can't wait to get into the Inhumans. Uh, I cannot wait. I'm really doing fun. an improv indie show tonight, and I'm calling our group the Inhumans. <laughs> um, I think that's all the awards I have. Do you have that's, anything else? Nope, that's it. I've got some uh, mail that I can read. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, where did I put it? Uh, here we go. I'm just going to open it up. I think I've got five or six. We can do as many or as few as you want, Will. We'll see how long they take. Okay. Um, great. This is from Joseph Mayer, Maher. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce names. Great. Um, he emails us, um, and one of the things he talks about is about how the FF he thinks are too powerful. I'm going to read this section. Okay. Um, in the extended Marvel comic universe, it has got me thinking. There are a few times when it's either hinted or flat out written that the FF are only doing the hero thing as a spoof and goof in the more recent years. Sue becomes so powerful that she can create a force field in someone's head to instant kill them. The thing is shown to always have been strong enough to beat Dr. Doom. Uh, 
Uh, in the 2006 Civil War, there seemingly some of this is bad story writing. I'm gonna uh, stick out and say that in the 2006 comic book series Civil War, they're ambivalent until Johnny is hurt. They're reluctant to get involved as they have set up a life outside of being heroes. It's almost as if the FF are presented as a goal that most heroes are trying to get to. Uh, there seems to not be much that they aren't equipped to handle easily in comparison to the rest of the Marvel Universe. Hmm. And he goes, am I way off the mark here? And most of that I want to dismiss. And I sort of emailed this guy back and sort of said this stuff. I think Civil War was written by Mark Millar, who kind of writes characters the way he needs for his stories to happen. And he likes to play up. Um, kind of jerk attitudes sometimes, I would say. Yeah. yeah. And this Doctor Doom, uh, a thing always being strong enough to beat Doctor Doom is from the Ultimate Universe. And okay. I, it's silly to dis- dismiss that, but it's like, well, that's not our thing in our Doom. It's a different one. Uh, and even the Sue killing someone instantly was from, he cites from Deadpool Kills the Marvel Universe, which is like a comedy series. So in a lot of those things, I think them being like uber efficient murderers, um, that's from other stories, but there is an aspect of them being so powerful. We even talked about it a little bit just a minute ago, like that they take on Galactus. Does that sort of set them too far outside the Marvel universe? Yeah. Is that, um, is that one of the things that hurts them? I guess that would be my question. I mean, I, I wonder why every superhero doesn't have this problem. I mean, like the supernatural abilities that Marvel characters have, they're all crazy and, <laughs> they're all so so powerful i mean like daredevil has a radar sense that is uncanny how far does that go mm-hmm. i mean if you can take almost any power push it and not too much and introduce sort of a storytelling problem um you know like reed when he shrinks and stuff what's happening to his organs like yeah. does reed's body contain the secret to like healing kidneys or something like that like i feel like if you if you took alan moore and gave him like one day with marvel heroes he would like find the most disturbing if this is true what else is true for all of them and you just have to kind of choose to not go there and i think it's just writer's discretion to to like just kind of not try to push the boundaries in a way that makes the stories no fun and you have to rely on the emotions like i think like the ff beating galactus it's sort of implied that they are they're creatures of honor. It is their honor and integrity that makes them worthy of defeating Galactus more than just brute force. Um, yeah, that, he, that I mean, Galactus is like intrigued by their honorable um, attempt, you know, and the Watcher is like inspired by them. And as long as you kind of make it emotional and not just the logistics of it, I think you can get away with a lot. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about this. It's sort of, uh, even without their powers, they find a way to defeat Galactus, probably. Um, like, they're, they're explorers and heroes first, hero, powerful, powers second. Um, I mean, he. I, I, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it. He's probably right that they're more powerful than I'm appreciating, but... It's just something that is true of almost uh, – of not almost any, but of so many superhero characters that it's like, well, this is just part of the genre. It's just a yeah. challenge of the genre. Yep. I think that's fair. And it, it might be one of those things that's what trips up people when they make Superman movies. It might be what trips up people when they have to deal with the Fantastic Four too. How do you both have them deal with the cosmic where they're in their element but also not make them so powerful they're boring? Yeah. I mean, if they have good personalities and they have good emotional stuff going on, we'll read it. I think that's yeah. the secret. 
Uh, Sam Russell emails, and I keep forgetting to mention this, so I'm just mostly using his email as an excuse. There's a series coming out uh, called uh, Fantastic Four Grand Design. Uh-huh. Uh, Ed Piscor did one for the X-Men. And it's basically like a retelling of um, the Claremont era of X-Men. Huh. And his art is like very – he's an indie artist and it's just very cool art. But it's mostly like a recap book that just looks really cool. And this artist, Tom Scioli, is doing it for the Fantastic Four. And I don't think you've seen Tom's art, Will, but I think you'll love it. Okay. It's going to be a really fun just look at the FF, I think. Yeah, Tom Scioli's work is very Kirby-influenced. Uh, uh, very right. like Kirby. So I think that'll be a really fun book. I keep forgetting to mention it because it was just announced right when our podcast began. So people keep emailing me about it and I don't say anything about it. Okay. Um, oh, here's a good question from Thomas Franzum. He asks, how do you make Galactus work? Um, and how would you make Galactus work in a movie? I'm going to yeah. pull that part of his question out. It's such a fun. Do you think he can be done well in a movie? And if so, how? I guess yes. This is his question. I'm sure he can. Just because I have such respect for what a cool character and idea Galactus is. Um, I don't... I'm trying to think how to recreate the feeling of seeing Galactus in the comics. Like, I would start from there. And it's like... It's kind of the realization that, like, there are bigger forces at play in the universe than we had ever imagined. Yeah. This universe is much more vast than we had previously thought. And... That itself is terrifying. And then that one of the forces is malevolent is um, also uh, scary. Um, so I'd want that like, oh, shit feeling. And I guess I'd yeah. want it early. I'd want it like end of the first act or something. Do you make him a, just a giant dude? No, I don't. I don't think the way Galactus looks is going to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's I, that's I always, the part I trip over the most. I always kind of forget that he is a man. Like in when I look at him in the comics, like doesn't now, doesn't he have like a G on him at some point? And in some of these early appearances, he has a G like he's a superhero with a logo. Like that kind of shit's got to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even when they settle into, he's still got that ridiculous helmet that he wears. He's like a dude in a helmet who's just really tall. <laughs> The helmet is so Kirby, though, in that it's so rad yeah. and inventive and it's not cliche. Like, I'm always a little hesitant to touch the really unique stuff. I might try to have the helmet there. I might just make him not a human. Or maybe he's appearing as a human. Uh, that is true, right? Galactus appears differently to every species. That might be true, yeah. John, John Byrne made that true, I think. Okay. Um, uh, in the trial of Reed Richards. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Um, so it could just be that everybody is seeing him differently. Um, it's weird that the silver surfer seems like the easier part of the Galactus story. Yeah. The guy in the surfboard who flies through space. He's human sized. Uh, he's got yeah. a simpler thing. I mean, he's not, uh, you know, in Marvel universe with Thor, they didn't really get into the fact that they're gods. They're just like super people. Yeah. And so, but Galactus kind of works because he is a manifestation of the end of time. Uh, I, do, I, I believe that he can work. Um, I mean, if they can make Mysterio's costume look good in Far From Home, I think there's a way to solve the look of it. It's more yeah. like the feeling of it. Can you make it feel like you have unlocked or stumbled upon the end of days, biblical? 
Yeah. And it's so hard to imagine doing a Fantastic Four trilogy without having Galactus in there. Yeah. I love the story so much. I just I want somebody good to do it. And I, and I think Galactus, weirdly, is an easier villain than Doctor Doom because. Yes, I agree with that. It's just he is relatable in terms of, you know, Galactus is Ragnarok. Galactus is Galactus is the end. Yeah, Galactus is a giant asteroid coming towards Earth. I think it would have to be like, this is something religious happening. And the FF are like, we can't solve the religion aspect of this. All we can do is do our best. And if it's our time, it's our time. We're going to go down fighting. And some other celestial being is going to have to join the fight and stop him. I don't think the FF should have the power to stop Galactus. I think they can just inspire some other figure to call him off. All right. I got three more emails. These are quick hits. Okay. Uh, Peter Kaufman writes and says, you described DC as the 50s and Marvel as the counterculture 60s. I'd use a different analogy. DC is like Disney. Marvel is Warner Brothers Looney Tunes. Just as Bugs Bunny would break the fourth wall and address the audience, Marvel does the same. Spider-Man often seems to be addressing the reader when he says, can you believe this? Marvel was meta from the jump. Um, I think I like that metaphor. I think that's smart. Yeah, it's it's a funny metaphor since... uh, Warner Brothers owns Disney or DC and Disney owns Marvel. <laughs> um, but I know what he's saying. Like Disney's kind of corporate and upright and Mar- and yeah. Warner, Warner Brothers is, um, you know, more reckless and daring. Yeah. yeah. And current DC uh, cartoons borrow more from Warner Brothers than they do from old or sorry. Current Disney cartoons borrow more from Warner Brothers than they do old Disney cartoons. Interesting. And DC Comics definitely borrows more from like early Marvel stuff than old DC stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good metaphor. Uh, two more questions. Uh, if you could join the Fantastic Four, this is from Corey Tour. Tour. If you could join the, I'm so bad with names. If you could join the Fantastic Four on a trip to any of their usual locations, where would you go? Atlantis, the blue area of the moon, the negative zone, Wakanda, microverse, something else. So fun. Um, without doubt, I'd go to Wakanda. Like I gotta see the gizmos of Wakanda. Like the te- the technology's crazy. I gotta go. Oh, that's interesting. That's not my answer. What's yours? I'm going to the blue area of the moon. Nice, dude. I'll tell you right away. I'm not going to the negative zone. That's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> the microverse, I think, is also sounds terrifying to me. Yeah, I don't. And Atlantis sure. sort of freaks me out being underwater. Yeah. But like going to the moon and being like this ancient city, this ancient civilization, that's very interesting to me. Atlantis is my second choice, but I uh, I like I like the way you're thinking, Kevin. Wakanda's my second choice. Yeah. Uh, no offense. I know you're King T'Challa. Uh, King T'Challa has been insulted, and you have created a war between this podcast and the people of Wakanda. Uh, and finally, this is not a question, but it's a fun email. This is from Shelly Hay. I talked about her in our email episode. Okay. Uh, because I said I think she's a female because I wasn't 100 percent sure with the name. Yeah. She she emailed me and said I am female. <laughs> That's not something I typically declare through email, but I thought I'd clear up the confusion. Uh, and, and if you remember, Shelly is our de facto Human Torch fan. Oh, right, right. And she writes, uh, thanks for your coverage of the FF. I'd rate it 10 out of 10 flames. <laughs> However, as the Human Torch correspondent, I'd rate your recent Spider-Man Far From Home episode 0 out of 10 flames. Uh. As far as I could tell, it was an entire episode dedicated, dedicated to Peter Parker and while I may have personally enjoyed it, my responsibility as a human the torch, uh, a human torch, 
correspondent demands that I rate such content as nothing more than a pile of kindling. I'm sure your coverage will return to its former flamethrower level glory soon. I mean, I don't remember agreeing to hire Shelly or <laughs> to yeah. contract her abilities. Don't but, think we have um, a choice. I like that she's just doing the work anyway. Um, she then sends me uh, our favorite Human Torch panels from the Spider-Man run mm. um, of the Human Torch doing his presentation for Peter Parker. Yeah. I love it. Um, um, it's like he's goes, talking my, right to me. Yeah, she says, these are my favorite. So, uh, since you share your favorite panels, here's one of mine. And she said, and I was like, this is also one of my favorite panels. Yeah. Uh, uh, Johnny looking out and saying, for a parting thought, stick to your schoolwork and do your best in your studies. Don't be discouraged if something seems tough. The important thing is never give up. Remember that. Never give up. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great panel. I love it. Anyway, Shelly, thanks for writing again. Uh, keep us honest on the Human Torch. Uh, yeah. We didn't talk about him a ton today, but... Hopefully enough to get some flames out of 10. Hopefully at least three flames. I feel like we were at least three flames. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, that's all I got, Will. Um, all right. Well, thanks for emailing everybody. Uh, I guess that's our episode, Kev. It is. Uh, next episode, we're going to talk about what? Uh, I have the wrong document page open. We're going to talk about... Issues 35. 35 uh, to 43 and annual three, I guess. Yeah. And then we're going to follow that up with issues 44 to 50, I believe. That's a shorter burst. So they're getting smaller and smaller, our selections, as these issues get better and better. The next the next batch is a great batch. And, it, and the only reason I even have to not say it's the greatest is it is followed by the greatest Fantastic Four stories of all time. Yeah. So, But the next batch is incredible. I can't wait for it. Yeah. It's some of my favorite Doom stuff at a Frightful Four work. Uh, uh, and I don't know why, but they do. They work great. It kicks um, into a high gear in this next batch. A whole other yeah. level is reached. Yeah. All right. So you can contact us at, uh, you can look at our Instagram, Screw It Comics. Kevin yep. puts amazing panel selections. If you're listening, gosh, if you've made it this far into an episode, really, follow Screw It Comics on Instagram. You'll love it. Um, we And there's a Screw It Recent is another Instagram account that Kevin just goes over other comics he's reading that are not necessarily related to our podcast, but Kevin has good taste in comics and it's worth following. We have a Twitter, Screw It Comics, which is basically just the Instagram account. And yep. then um, we have an email address, Screw It Spidey, because that was our original email and we, were, we didn't want to change it. So if you want to email us, email us at Screw It Spidey and tell us what you think about the Fantastic Four, please. Yeah, or any, or any Spidey at Spidey at gmail.com. And uh, Kevin, good job podcasting. Will, uh, you did a spectacular job. You did a uncanny job. Mm, you did an unbeatable job. You did a mighty, amazing job. Uh, you did a web of job. <laughs> you did a night of the job. <laughs> You did an all new, all different job. <laughs> you did a giant sized job. I agree. Okay. See you guys <laughs> next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye. Screw it. Screw it. We're just going to talk about comics. What's up, stoners? Welcome to I'm Too Effing High. It's a podcast where we test the age-old question, does marijuana make you funnier? I'm here to talk to you about eating people. I bring on comedians. I get them high on marijuana. Ooh, yes. It's just like Fisherman's Cop. Oh, yeah. what and I would know. <laughs> 
please give a warm welcome to Nicole Byer, Tim Bob, Sam Richardson, Mary Holland. Are you guys ready for this show tonight? I'm too effing high. New episodes every Tuesday. Stay yeah. too effing high, you guys. Campfire.